This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 7, Ancient Athens. Greece is not an easy story to tell in a linear fashion due to the many different aspects of Greek culture which we are lucky enough to have a lot of detail on. The reason for this detail is thanks to the many written records that have survived the test of time and come down to us in the present day with stories of events and characters who existed in Greek lands two and a half thousand years ago. Certainly, we learned in episode 2 that Darius the Great of Achaemenid Persia invaded Greek lands in the 5th century BCE. However, before this time, there was a great deal to talk about in relation to the activity of the societies of Greek lands before this period. Culture and colonisation are two particular aspects of ancient Greece which deserve further attention in future episodes but for now we will look at ancient Athens due to the significance that this particular polis has on our understanding of ancient Greek political developments. As we discovered in the previous episode the lands of Greece were ruled by the Mycenaeans during the second millennium BCE from their power base in the Peloponnese. The Mycenaeans and their influence dwindled away, eventually disappearing in the wake of the late Bronze Age collapse, which we spoke of in episode 6 of volume 2 of this podcast. As a result, the Greek lands entered a dark age, where there is no contemporary written evidence of what was going on. What we can feel somewhat confident about is the fact that those people of the Greek lands that were left behind after the late Bronze Age collapse continued to live in this area, but their lifestyles returned to a comparatively simple subsistence lifestyle until society managed to rebuild itself and grow again. So we start to see settlements grow again based on successful agriculture and as such we see that these settlements would naturally need to be governed in order to prosper. Athens was a city that demonstrated such success in rebuilding in the formative years of ancient Greece. It also gives us a great demonstration of the political progressions of this society as it battled for supremacy over its rival polis. Pressures often dictate progress, and Athens is a great case in point. So let us focus on what happened there. There are king lists which exist from the classical period which detail the kings of Athens right back to the Mycenaean period, but 
we have to be extremely careful here. Time and time again, we have found retrospective ancient writings to be full of fantasy and unfounded claims. And although we cannot completely disregard the information, we have to be realistic about the fact that there are arguments for and against the information, and with good reason. There is a very definite motivation for creating a legitimate history of your city or your ethnic group if you want the population to support it and have total faith and commitment to it. So there is a very real motivation for contemporary writers to tell lies. However, we cannot prove it or disprove it either way. For the purpose of this particular episode of the podcast, we will be looking at how Athens was governed and how that governance evolved. So it would be correct to look at what we believe a king was in Athens at the start of its emergence as a major power of the Greek lands. Aristocracy The word aristocracy can typically invoke mental images of upper-class society dressed in the finest clothes and looking down their noses at the people beneath them. Often we think of the royal families of European nations, of the early modern world and even their politicians. The word aristocracy originates from the ancient Greek word aristokratia. The word kratos is the Greek word for rule, as in the ruler of a society. So in the 5th century BCE philosopher's name Socrates, we find a derived form of kratos, which tells us that the name means safe rule or unwounded power. The first part of the word aristokratia comes from the Greek word aristos, which means the best or noblest. So the word aristocracy originated in ancient Greek and means the rule of the nobility. The highest class of people rules the lands of ancient Greece and the king was the monarch at the top of the aristocracy. And we can feel somewhat confident that this is how Athens was being ruled after the 9th century BCE, with many of the aristocracy being the major landowners who were responsible for the staple agricultural production, among other things. Other members of the aristocracy would have been military leaders. The monarch himself would have been more of a figurehead for the aristocracy, as we are aware that the aristocracy would meet at a large rock called the Areopagus, which sits in the shadows of the Acropolis in Athens. Entering into the 7th century BCE, and Athens was a growing polis of the Greek lands ruled by its aristocracy. Other areas of Greek lands were building their own identities and growing thanks to their abilities to agriculturally succeed in these lands, which may be somewhat surprising considering how rocky and mountainous some of the Greek lands are. 
There were also successful trade networks being built, and not least of all with the Phoenicians, who were sharing their efficient alphabetic form of writing with the Greeks who would develop it to suit their own language, an Indo-European language which survived from the late Bronze Age Mycenaeans. It is thanks to this that we know what we do. Many polis, which is the plural form of polis, were springing up all over the Balkan Peninsula and the lands of and around the Aegean Sea. Throughout the 7th century BCE, some of these polis were setting sail across the sea and colonising other areas such as the Italian peninsula. We know that the Eubians and Ionians and the Spartans were colonising the Italian peninsula. It was a competition between the polis for wealth and power over each other at this stage, which was represented well during the ancient Olympic Games, which were undoubtedly taking place during this period in the spirit of competition and something we mentioned in the previous podcast. Athens was happily expanding its influence over its neighbouring lands, creating a wider-reaching polis all the time by subjugating the lands of local landowners in the region surrounding the city of Athens, which included the Attica Peninsula, where Athens is situated. The advantages of this expansion for Athens meant that the polis was gaining more influence over more lands and was able to gather more financial resource for the competing polis as a whole. The consequences of this expansion was the growth of the working class, leading to a requirement of powerful rule to keep this large population in order, which is something that the aristocracy of Athens had not had to take as seriously in the past. Chelon of Athens The rulers of Athens in the 7th century BCE were leaders elected from within the aristocracy and these leaders are called archons. This kind of rule seemed to suit Athens for the early part of the 7th century BCE with no real evidence of problems. It may even be the case that the Athenians had a turn at controlling the important waterway of the Hellespont during this century. To the west of Athens, a polis had developed at Corinth, but it had been overthrown by a man called Kypsilus in around the year 657 BCE. Kypsilus would then rule Corinth as a tyrant ruler. In other words, somebody who had not been voted in to rule the polis, but someone who had been installed to rule, and in this case he was installed by himself. This was one of the first recorded instances of a tyrannical takeover of a polis, but would also potentially influence others into making a similar bid for power. If we travel east from Corinth, we are moving in the direction of Athens. And about halfway along this journey, we stumble across the city of Megara. It seems that Megara would undergo a similar transition to Corinth when it was subject to the tyranny of a man called Theogenes. Theogenes of Megara had a daughter, and that daughter was married 
to an Olympic athlete from Athens called Chelon. The chronicle of the 3rd to 4th century Christian bishop called Eusebius of Caesarea tells us that Chelon was the winner of the Olympic Diaulos, a race of around 400 metres, and this was in the year 640 BCE. Chelon thought that it might be time that Athens should have its own tyrant ruler, and he believed himself to be the man to do it. So the year was 632 BCE, and the sequence of events was written about by Herodotus, the 5th century BCE Carian Greek historian, who we have mentioned on many occasions during this podcast's previous episodes. It was also written about by the 5th century BCE Athenian historian Thucydides. Their accounts differ slightly, but we do have the foundation of a very interesting little story about Chelon and what he did in 632 BCE. It may have been the case that Chelon's father-in-law, Theogenes, the tyrant of Megara, was supportive of Chelon's attempted coup of Athens. Chelon would excuse his behaviour by claiming that it was the instruction of the Pythia that motivated him to make a move for total control of Athens. The Pythia was the high priestess of the Temple of Apollo and can often be referred to as the Oracle of Delphi. Whether or not this is true, Chelon would gather a following and make his move. It is suggested that Chelon's Olympic victory would have done a lot to motivate people to join his cause as a respected Athenian hero. Despite all of this support, the existing elected archons of Athens opposed Chelon, not surprisingly, and Chelon had to retreat with all of his supporters to the temple of Athena on the Acropolis. Now, there are varying accounts relating to the fate of the Chelonians here, with them being stranded on the Acropolis. Eventually, the Chelonians were coerced out of the temple of Athena by the archons who pledged to spare their lives. However, it appears that when the Chelonians emerged, they were stoned to death. Some accounts suggest that Chelon escaped, but there is no further mention of Chelon after this event in any texts. The only thing that we may have is the astonishing discovery of mass grave sites, which were uncovered in 2016 and show that the individuals had been carefully shackled, most likely as a part of their execution in an unusual manner, in that there had been no other similar discoveries of this nature. Could this be the mass grave of the Chelonians, discovered over two and a half thousand years later? What the Chelonian affair, as it has been named, has demonstrated is that despite this seemingly blissful way of life that existed in the 7th century BCE lands of ancient Greece, there would always be opposition from those who craved power over their fellow men and that the growth of the polis would naturally lead to a more vulnerable security 
as more lands and people were engulfed. It may well have been events like this that led to the draconian constitution. Lawgivers Much in the same way that Hammurabi did for the Babylonians over a thousand years previous, it was clear that there needed to be a strong law code for the Athenians. Law codes had existed previously, much as they did in Mesopotamian lands before the lifetime of Hammurabi, but in Athens there was little faith in the existing laws, which were seen by the people as a law that could be interpreted by the aristocracy in whatever manner suited them in each individual circumstance. It would require somebody to establish a firm and unquestionable law code that would clear up any ambiguities of the oral law code which was being used previously. Kelon's rebellion is seen by some as a direct response to the unfair rule of the aristocracy and how the people were not satisfied with how their polis was being ruled. The Athenians would demand more of their rulers than an elitist law system and so a man called Draco was asked to be a legislator for the Athenians. We don't know a great deal about Draco as a human being but his biggest legacy is in the word draconian and we will now explore why this is the case. What Draco did was put oral law in writing so that it could be read by everybody. But we also have to remember that everybody would not have been able to read. The fact that corrupt members of the aristocracy could now be brought into question by somebody had to at least be a positive step. Draco himself was surely an educated member of the Athenian aristocracy and as we have already suggested, a good number of the aristocracy would have been the landowners of Attica, who must surely have been interested in there being a just legal system to protect the workers of their land from injustices that would have certainly caused unrest if not dealt with correctly. The lack of a reliable legal system in Athens would have also lent themselves to blood feuds, which would have manifested themselves easily in a society where family bonds were very important and a fundamental unit of the population, especially within the aristocracy. So the introduction of a law code seems like a very natural progression for a blossoming polis such as Athens. The biggest issue with Draco's law code was its harshness, some of the finest examples of this harshness include the punishment if anybody did not pay a debt back to their creditor, where they would be forced into a position of slavery to that creditor. Also, if somebody was guilty of stealing a cabbage or even an apple, then that theft could be punishable by death. Such was the extremeness of this law code that some described the code as having been written in blood and its legacy survives to this day as mentioned before in the English word draconian which is now a general term referring to a harsh law. In Athenian society the laws of Draco did not last long and a reform was necessary at the start of the 6th century BCE. 
if the health of Athens as a polis had been good under the aristocracy, then this problem would not have existed. The fact of the matter was that Athens was now responsible for the outlying lands of the Attica Peninsula, as well as the city of Athens itself, and that Draco's law code had just not solved the bigger problems, and the health of the Athenian polis was vital as it needed to economically compete with its neighbours to avoid being overrun. Farmers of the Attica Peninsula were being consigned into slavery and this was not healthy for the polis as a whole, which needed a healthy agrarian industry to facilitate the ever-increasing population. So another man was invited to reform the Athenian legal system and his name was Solon. Solon would expunge the debtor-slavery laws of Draco and allow the debts to be eliminated so that society could start afresh. The harsh laws were removed so that you would not necessarily fear for your life if you were caught scrumping. Solon would also make important political reforms that would give more political opportunity to people outside of the aristocracy. So it might seem a little confusing to understand why the aristocracy would allow such a thing to happen in their polis. This is what I think was on their minds. If we look at what else was going on in the Greek lands in the lead up to this time, then we have to consider the rapid ascent of Sparta, a polis on the Peloponnese to the south of Athens and Corinth. Sparta had conquered the Mycenaeans in the late 7th century BCE in its own quest for expansion and wealth, and its growth and power would certainly have been a major concern for the Athenians who would have expected the Spartans to become a major rival. The Spartans had become adept in warfare as they were taking over the lands of the Peloponnese and the Athenians would have understood the requirement for having its own intimidating army to make the Spartans think twice about challenging Athens. So the Athenians had their own army which is fairly well known to historians as it contained the famous phalanx formation style infantrymen who we refer to as the hoplites. Military personnel were very valuable to the polis during this period and their obedience and loyalty to their respective polis was vital to its fortunes. It is fair to say that the hoplites of the Athenian army were not part of the aristocracy and that the hoplites would have relied on a successful agricultural industry to not only feed them and their families but also to enable the Athenians to successfully trade with other societies in order to keep the polis economically strong. If Athens was not economically strong then it may lose the loyalty of the hoplites who would either migrate away or even prop up a tyrant such as Chelon who may forcibly take control of Athens. So it would have been really important to make people outside the aristocracy including the valuable hoplites feel like they could have an influence over their policy's fortunes. It would still be the wealthiest people of the polis who would have the greatest say in politics but it would not be restricted to the aristocratic families of Athens 
as it had been previously. Another important political reform of Solon was to expand the right to vote beyond the city of Athens itself, to beyond and including the lands of Attica in general. As we already know, the Athenian council was held at the Areopagus Rock in the shadows of the Acropolis. The Areopagus council was generally made up of those elders who had previously served as archons to Athens, and the archons were the elected heads of department who would be the heads of Athenian politics. Being elected, the archons would be the rulers of Athens but would ultimately be accountable to the Athenian aristocracy who elected them and replaced them each year. Even though the Areopagus existed as a consultative council of elders who would supervise the decisions of these serving archons, Solon would create a general assembly called the Ecclesia, who would be made up of regular Athenian citizens and would elect the archons themselves, meaning that ultimately the people who made up the Areopagus would contain retired archons who had been elected by the citizens and not the aristocracy. This was a major step towards a much more inclusive way of ruling the polis and what some describe as a very democratic move. After Solon declared his reforms, he promptly left Greek lands and left Athens to its fortunes. Tyranny Now, I do feel that it is important at this stage to say that there are a great many aspects of the political, social and legal reforms of the Athenian polis that I've chosen not to go to into great detail. But it is fair to say that there are incredible amounts of resources online that illustrate a lot of the developments in an easy to digest fashion. So if this period of Greek history interests you, then you can find out so much more and I'll be sure to publish one or two of my own preferred links. The reforms of Draco and Solon were intended to modernise Athens and bring the polis closer together, working as a cohesive unit to succeed in a competitive ancient Greek world. It was designed to prevent the tyrannies that had affected their neighbours and preserve the power of the aristocracy as much as possible by submitting that they would need to make their polis more inclusive and therefore potentially prevent another attempted coup, such as the one attempted by Chelon. The History of the World, edited by John Whitney Hall, gives us a perspective on the impact of Solon's reforms. Initially, the reforms gave the lower classes hope of a brighter future. However, even though the elimination of debt slavery enabled farmers to return to their lands, it still did not solve their financial prospects. Now, farmers would not be able to borrow money as they had done previously. Agricultural trade embargoes had been put in place and farmers would start to leave their lands and seek their fortunes in the city itself. So Solon's reforms started creating different pressures to the Athenians now that the city itself was becoming overpopulated. The polis was once again in a state of discontent. 
it would be down to a man called Pisistratos to aid the Athenians by taking control of the Megaron seaport of Nysia. This would open up an opportunity for trade that had not been previously available to the Athenians, so it would be a popular move for those lower-class opportunists looking for a quick path back to fortune. It would also raise the hopes of the Athenians who had been suffering for too long and Pisistratus was fast becoming a popular figure. Pisistratus's popularity gave him the power to make a realistic bid for power and he was able to make his way to the Acropolis and take control of the city of Athens, declaring himself as the new tyrant. Now you could argue that he wasn't the first tyrant due to the likes of Solon being installed as a tyrant ruler to reform the polis and the way that it was ruled. However, this was the first instance of a successful coup or an unauthorised bid for power. This would mark the start of a period of tyrannies in Athens by individuals collectively referred to as the Pisistratids. The success of Pisistratus' successful claim for power was in some part thanks to his popularity within the Ecclesia, which if you remember is the great assembly of non-aristocratic citizens that was commissioned by Solon. This was in the year 561 BCE. Pisistratus' impact on Athens is considerable. As tyrant, he would make considerable changes. Citizens would now be able to apply for state loans in order to purchase lands for agricultural purposes. Trading opportunities were created that would enable the artisans of the coastal lands of Attica to sell their wares, and we can see evidence of this with the comparative widespread distribution of Athenian ceramic ware supplanting other policies wares such as Corinth. Pisistratos knew that he had a duty to rule Athens responsibly and set about building projects which would offer employment opportunities to the large city population. One such project was the construction of an Athena's temple on the Acropolis which was vital to the identity of Athens with Athena being the city's protective goddess, rather like a titular deity. Athena's symbol was stamped on Athenian standardised coinage for the polis, and the Areopagus, which would now be viewed as the old rich man's council, was preserved in order to please the aristocracy, despite all the opportunities given to lower-class citizens. Pisistratus was a good tyrant. The story of Athenian political and social development is very deep, thanks to the amazing amount of recorded information which we have, and that is in stark contrast to the lack of information we have from the direct aftermath of the late Bronze Age collapse. There is a lot more interesting detail to the content of this episode, but in the interest of keeping the story going, we haven't explored all of it. So next week we're going to continue moving forward and discussing the fortunes of Pisistratos and his impact on Athenian society.
Well, there was just too much this week to cram into this episode, so I've had to split it into two parts. It's not the first time I've had to do that, but I didn't feel like it would do it justice. There's such a lot of interesting information about ancient Athens before the emergence of the Persians, which is where we're aiming for. As soon as we get to that point, we're going to stop. We're going to have a look at some other aspects of Greek life and uh, what was going on in Greek lands and Greek societies, Greek cultures, before we then venture into the very exciting and dramatic stages of the 5th century BCE, where the Greeks were often at war, whether it be with each other or with foreign influences. So interesting stuff coming up. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so. You can go directly to the Patreon page, which can be accessed by visiting the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, and you can make a monthly donation to the podcast. And when you do, not only do you help to give the podcast a real boost of quality, but you also become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati, as has Sandy Lynn, who has uh, kindly signed up to make a monthly donation. So thank you, Sandy. You are now a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Remember, even if you do or do not donate to the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you could rate and review the podcast because then we gain more exposure to more people, which is the name of the game. So... Thank you to all of you who've listened. Thank you to all of you who are members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And thank you to those of you who have reviewed the podcast. Thank you for Zachary Daichin Tengri, who has recommended the History of the World podcast on Facebook. And he has put a source de connaissance immense sur l'histoire du monde. Um, which uh, translates, according to Facebook, to say source of immense knowledge on the history of the world. So thank you, Zachary. I should say thank you to Albena Carameros, who has sent me a link to the fascinating Pestera Kozarnica. Oh, goodness knows if I've pronounced that correctly. However, it's a really, really interesting um, site of... Um, some 1.5 million years ago and uh, gives us some evidence of human activity so uh, I may well post the link on the Facebook page for that but um, fantastic fantastic and something I really didn't mention in in the early podcast shamefully so uh, thank you so much for sending that on I think we'll get well soon to uh, Meredith Johnson the host and producer of the Origins podcast and the communication director for the Leakey Foundation. Um, She's uh, been touring around Kenya and Ethiopia and has become rather ill. Um, I know that feeling all too well. um, Any time I've been to that part of the world, I've been struck down myself. And uh, we really do have to try and build up our immune systems, don't we, before we... uh, before we can spend any quality time out there. But anyway, um, get well soon, Meredith. 
Thank you to David from Los Angeles, California, who said, uh, hello, Chris, sent me an email, by the way, said, but hello, Chris, just wanted to say thanks. I'm still on season one, but enjoying the excellent job you do. I find the podcast both entertaining and quite informative. I listen at night before bed and can't tell you how much I appreciate that you don't have loud, distracting music while you're speaking. I can listen to a few episodes and it's quiet and well suited to evening listening well thank you very much it's quite nice to have that validation david i do believe that this is a a good way to present podcasts and historical information and uh, we don't need to sensationalize it if you love history then uh, you know you might appreciate the simplicity of the broadcast and you might just purely find the information entertaining enough without glorifying it so thank you so much for that feedback well that's it i'm going to wrap up for this week so thank you so much for listening uh, next week we'll continue the story of ancient athens and in a couple, a couple of weeks we're going to reach a a big listener milestone but i'll tell you more about that in a couple of weeks time but until then have a fantastic week everybody and join me again next week for some more history of the world podcast and some more about the ancient Greeks. If you want to find out more, don't forget to tune in to Ryan Stitt's History of Ancient Greece podcast. Highly recommended, and uh, you can really get in depth into some of these discussion points. So until next week, cheerio. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, History of the World Podcast. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.